Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, Minimizers. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and my good friend Ryan Nicodemus is out today. He has a children's cold. And so we brought a special guest in the studio. You're going to see him in a moment. But first, let's talk about our culture. We live in a culture that's obsessed with positivity and purpose. And so we've been told that nihilism is perhaps the worst possible outcome for humans. But is that true? Is nihilism always bad? Today on the public podcast, we're speaking with the philosopher. He's our fan favorite. Peter Rollins is here today. We're going to talk about the nuances of nihilism. Then this Thursday on the Minimalist Private Podcast, Peter and I are going to talk about depression despair, suicidal thoughts, and suffering. You can find that long-form conversation at patreon.com slash theminimalists. There, you'll also gain access to hundreds of hours of private archives. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement-free because advertisements suck. Well, Peter, before we get into our first question today, I really got to say you truly are a fan favorite. So thank you for being on the podcast. So you're today. just buttering me up because I know that I was not the first choice for today. <laughs> I know that the, the email came in a few days earlier. So you can butter me up as much as you want. <laughs> it is true that it we was were like, so- who, who lives in Los Angeles that we can get last minute? Who, who doesn't have a life? Oh, he'll be able to do it. <laughs> I, uh, I've been wanting to have this conversation yeah. about nihilism for a long time. In fact, the day we're recording this is the 11-year anniversary of The Minimalist. And that first month, in December of 2010, we put up a post about, well, the nihilism of Fight Club and how it may or may not be nihilism. And, and so I want to talk to you a bit about that. I want to talk about what does it even mean to be nihilist? Is it necessarily bad? And I want to talk about all these other emotions as well, because you're right. We, we originally were supposed to have a different guest on today. Julie Wilson was supposed to be here. She had the reschedule. We were going to talk about suicide and suicidal thoughts. So I thought we would approximate that conversation today with something that often leads to despair, to suffering, to misery. And so let's dive into our questions. This is a listener-driven show. Sarah from Facebook has a question for us. Can you explain the relationship between nihilism and minimalism in a clear, tangible way? Well, I don't know if it'll be clear and tangible, (laughs) but you're the perfect guest to talk about this because you do you understand the nuances here. And so when we talk about minimalism, there's obviously all these different movements of minimalism. There's minimalist art, minimalist literature. When we're talking about minimalism, we're talking about minimalism as a lifestyle, understanding what is essential for you, and it's highly individual, and then also eliminating the excess. So that's basically what we're talking about with respect to living a simple life or living as a minimalist. And so how would that apply to nihilism? Can we even talk about what what is nihilism? Because I think there are various conceptions and misconceptions. Yes. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, so minimalism, the word minimal means like less or little. And uh, nihilism comes from the Latin word nihil meaning nil and meaning nothing. So there is an interesting um, etymological connection between a minimal lifestyle and the word nihilism. But there are, as you said, there's lots of differences and whatnot. So 
maybe will I start by giving a very basic background to nihilism and that'll probably get us somewhere. That'll help. Um, yeah, so I mean, at a very basic level, nihilism is about nothing, right? So if you had a, if you had a dating app for nihilists, it would be for people who have nothing in common, right? Because people who like nothing. And um, interestingly in philosophy, nothing has been a central topic right from the beginning and in religion and also in mathematics. I mean, it was a huge development in mathematics when we circled nothing and created zero. I mean, that was a massive innovation for math. Um, we also have Buddhism and in Hinduism, various notions of the nothing. So this, this idea of nothingness has kind of uh, attracted thinking for thousands of years. But primarily when we use the word nihilism, we're referring to something that really grew in the 18th and 19th century and then embedded itself in the 20th century. And connected with that is the movement of existentialism. So interestingly, existentialism and nihilism are very interconnected, mm -hmm. um, as well as interestingly, Christianity. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll kind of maybe see the link between nihilism, existentialism and Christianity. Um, but that's not really answering the question about where it connects with minimalism. Um, I think about Tyler Durden in Fight Club. And, you know, it's funny, I saw that film when I was probably in my late teens. I'm 40 now. And I remember watching it again around age 30 and, and reading the book in my mid-20s. The book is much more sardonic than the film. And it's almost like this parodic exaggeration of what one might call nihilism. Yeah. Uh, or you could call it like anarcho-primitivism. There, there's, some, there's something there. It, when you think about the main character who, you know, spoiler alert, is schizophrenic and you know, essentially it manifests. It, it's almost like Buddhism manifesting in toxic masculinity <laughs> is maybe the way I would describe yeah. the film. But there's a deep understanding of all of the things we're attempting to do, do with yeah. our lives. The activities, the actions, the consumption, the consumerism is making us miserable. There's no inherent meaning in those things. And so when we're talking about nihilism, sometimes we're talking about the well, the nothing is inherently meaningful. It's not that everything is meaningless necessarily. That can be one interpretation, but maybe there isn't an inherent purpose or meaning to anything. Yeah, no, that's true. And bringing Fight Club into it's a very good point. Um, so if we take one of the primary... Uh, now, here's the funny things. You, you know, we think of someone like Nietzsche as a nihilist, but he actually wasn't. He was... Uh, most thinkers that we think are nihilists are attempting to overcome nihilism but they take it very seriously. So for Nietzsche, nihilism, and he talks at the death of God, I'd love to explore what that phrase means in a minute, but he talks about this experience of the death of God. And one way of describing what he means is an experience in which the way that you make sense of your life begins to collapse. So in Fight Club, this guy who's you know, got a job, he's buying all the furniture, he's trying to get the perfect life and then he experiences this kind of sense of meaninglessness that mm -hmm. all of that fades away. This is, um, you can be experienced or called an experience of the death of God. And Nietzsche argues that we are in a nihilistic world and that we have to experience that loss in order to create something better. So we have to kind of experience the loss of meaning 
in order to have the courage to enter into something else. And mm -hmm. so Fight Club is very much like that. And even, you know, the story that you've told me about your life mm -hmm. and the start of The Minimalists, it was a type of death of God experience where all of the way that you were creating meaning in your life suddenly became meaningless. You experienced the, the, the lack of potency and it all dissolved away. And then you set yourself on a new course. So for someone like Nietzsche, we are, human beings have this ability to experience almost like a short circuit, like putting your finger into a socket, short circuiting yourself and, and reimagining the world uh, and, and getting yourself onto a new track of cause and effect. So the death of God or the nihilistic event is the event in which all of the ways morally and materialistically you've constructed your life, it all dissolves away and you have this radical moment of freedom. Yeah. So there's a line in Fight Club, in, in the book at least, where he talks about the losing all hope was freedom. And that's another word that we hope we think of as always good and more. We moralize everything. So it's yeah. always good or bad. It's binary and, and nihilism bad, hope good. But the things that we hope for often drive us toward misery, unhappiness, discontent, and ultimately despair, suffering. A lot of a lot of that has to do with the expectations we set. And you mentioned my story. Yeah, it was very much like the the narrator in Fight Club, where it you know I didn't devolve into schizophrenia, thankfully. But this is it, where I tell you that Ryan doesn't exist. This is <laughs> I don't know if they've told you this yet, but he's just a figment of your imagination. That's why he looks so messy and you look so clean. It's like you're opposites. It is order and chaos. <laughs> yeah, and I often uh, wonder whether or not he is my Tyler Durden. Yeah, and. It, the, the funny thing here is, yes, there was actually never meaning in the things I thought I would find meaning in. You know, oh, if I just buy the right car, oops, that didn't work because I didn't, I bought the wrong car. I needed a fancier one, a better one, a second one, whatever it was. Materialism, right? You know, there's the sort of the, the thing in Fight Club where it's, he's essentially an Ikea catalog, his house is. And it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with Ikea. Mm. The problem is the thinking the pursuit of that is going to complete me. In fact, there's even a line in the book where he talks about, I was almost complete, right? And his apartment sort of it burns down, right? And, and he's mourning that loss of all being almost complete. Yes. It's yes. a story he's telling himself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Nietzsche has this very subtle way of describing this experience. So if you look at the 20th century as the, um, the, the birth of nihilism as an attitude and as an aesthetic, uh, one of the most defining events was the First World War. So the First World War was very significant in the kind of the, the development of a nihilistic um, experience. Mm -hmm. Now, the subtlety of Nietzsche is that he says that the 20th century is the denial of this experience of nihilism. And what he means by that is if you think about it in terms of fundamentalism, people think that fundamentalism is certainty, right? So if you're a fundamentalist, you have certainty, you have belief, but it's, it's not quite like that. So someone like Paul Tillich would say that when you're young, you think you're right, because obviously you've never thought about anything else and you just think you're correct and your parents knew everything. That's not fundamentalism. But at a certain point in your life, you then confront someone who thinks differently and who's smart, who's intelligent, who gives you a different view. Now, right. at this point, you've got two options. 
One option is to listen and go, oh, I've never thought about that and, you know, go with it. Or the other is to close your ears, say, I'm not listening, and then to re- re- uh, kind of retreat into your own little castle and buy all your apologetics books and try to defend against this. So fundamentalism isn't knowing, it's repressed unknowing. It's, it's, a, it's a repressed disbelief. And that's why you can tell if someone gets angry whenever you disagree with them, it's not because they disagree with you. It's because they disagree with themselves. There's something they disagree with in themselves that's coming out, right? So in a similar way... Wait, expand on that a bit more. So anger, because I, I, I find anger arising in me all the time. And, and it's fascinating that it doesn't manifest differently. If it, Maybe it's sadness. Yeah. Uh, it, it could very well. But why... why anger in particular. It doesn't mean that I, I, I react on it outwardly, but yeah. I can see it arising. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's, and it's often has to do with the expectations I place on myself or on others. Exactly. And so it's always a good tale. I, I'm a big believer in listening to whenever we feel certain things. So for example, if you're married and someone says to you, oh, I don't think marriage really works. And I think, you know, marriage is like, it's just going to end up in even the happiest marriage. The, the best you can hope for is sleeping in separate rooms and silently hating each other, right? That's, uh, but, but there's going to be affairs or whatever. And someone says that to you. If you get angry, really angry mm-hmm. and frustrated, there's probably a part of you that agrees with them. Now, you don't know that consciously, but, but if, you, if you just laugh and go, oh, yeah, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, right? And you don't have a, an affect, that yeah. shows that you're probably quite confident in your marriage. But uh-huh. if it generates this anger, I never want to see you again. Um, it's just like if I say to you, I think your partner's having an affair and you get really angry with me and you say, get out of my house, I never want to see you again. That's evidence that you already know it, you just don't want to know that you know it. Because instead of going, oh my goodness, is that right? And sitting down and thinking about it and going, oh, I don't, that's, I'm, this is completely new to me. The anger is a sign that potentially you're repressing the truth. Like all the signs are there, you just don't want to see it. Almost like getting a, a letter from the banker from a doctor. And as long as you don't open it, you don't know that you've got the heart disease or you've got, you know, you're in withdrawal. You kind of know it, but you can't open the letter because you don't want to know that you know it. Yeah. We, we do want to be confronted with the things that we know. And, and so what Nietzsche Ooh, says... Tweet that podcast, Sean. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> the biggest thing. Is like the, the most radical knowledge is not the stuff we don't know, but the stuff that we know, but we don't want to know that we know. So even... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so true. And even, Expand uh, on that. Yeah, like, so take a political example. If you have, um, well, you know, if, you, if someone is a whistleblower uh-huh. and they say stuff that you don't know... That's a surprise, but generally the whistleblowers who get in the most trouble are not the ones who tell us what we don't know. They tell us what we do know, right? Say the military are killing innocent people. We're being, there's, uh, there's uh, surveillance technologies being used against citizens. We all know that stuff. We just don't want to know that we know. So when mm. a whistleblower comes out with the evidence, we're confronted with our disavowed knowledge. Right. It's the same even like I do. I, I'll, I won't want to look at, you know, uh, leaflets about how they treat animals in uh, abattoirs. Mm-hmm. What? Because I don't know how they treat them. Of course, I know it's terrible. I just don't want to know that I know. Because <laughs> yeah. if I know that I know, then it will disrupt my lifestyle and I have to make a change. Right. But if I can deny myself. So um, Slavio Šizek uses a, a funny example from Donald Rumsfeld, where if you remember, he once said, there are things that we 
don't know. Uh-huh. Um, there are things that we don't know we don't know. Uh-huh. And then he said there are things that we know we don't know, right? This is the famous kind of philosophy of Rumsfeld. And what he meant is there's things that we don't know, right? You know, how many cars are outside right now. There's things that we don't know that we don't know, which is like certain weapons that a country might have that we can't even conceive of. Yes. And then he says, and things that we we know we don't know, um, that are things that we don't know. Oh, yes. Yeah. Things that we kind of like, we know they've got certain things we don't know what. But in terms of psychoanalysis, there's a fourth one mm. and the fourth one is things that we know, but we don't want to know that we know, <laughs> and that's that's the realm of the unconscious. And, and so, if I bring it back to to Fight Club for a second, the the real nihilism there, in a way, was the capitalists. Yeah, a- and when you see it manifest that way, because we look for meaning, mm. we don't find the meaning, yeah. and so we keep sort of we often throw our hands up and we just settle for misery or worse yeah. we settle for happiness yes in some ways and we we um like a great example of, of what, what i was meaning is that in the 20th century most people today don't believe that having the right apartment or the right car or the right this or that's going to make them happy right they they don't believe it but they still act as if they believe it they and, believe it and i've heard you talk about this because advertisers still yeah, believe it that's right it's kind of the belief through through the other and um, just like uh Parents might not believe in Santa Claus, but they get all the enjoyment of the belief because their child believes in Santa Claus. And it's only when the child stops believing that 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 affects their experience of Christmas. Yes. Um, The death of Santa. Death of Santa. Yeah. (laughs) So this weird thing about and this is why, by the way, uh, Nietzsche used this beautiful quote. He said, after after the Buddha died, he said it was said that the shadow of the Buddha remained on a cave wall for thousands of years. He said, um, we must not only see the death of God, we must see the death of the shadow of God. And, and what he meant by that was that actually in the 20th century, people have experienced a loss of meaning. They have experienced a loss of external authorities that will tell us what to do and how to act. We've experienced that loss However, we deny that loss. So mm-hmm. we weirdly more frantically go into materialism, more frantically go into fanaticism. We more, we're more, we're actually in danger of embracing hollow materialist and fanaticist positions precisely because we don't believe in them. That's, the, that's why I use the fundamentalist example. Is fundamentalism is precisely uh, a certainty that betrays uncertainty. And so today there's a certain fanaticism and materialism that actually betrays um, a disbelief that it works, but but a disbelief that we haven't embraced. And so for someone like Paul Tillich, he says, we have to have the courage to know what we know, which is the courage to embrace nihilism, not so that we despair, but so that we can move beyond despair. Yes. Yeah. I do want to talk to you so much more about despair, but let's move on to Matt's question here on Facebook. Is nihilism the same thing as pessimism? So let's talk about specifically when we're talking about nihilism, I think people conflate it with pessimism. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're just a pessimist. You're just a nihilist. They use the the terms interchangeably. And if I'm not here to be a dictionary for you. And so if you mean the same thing, but I'm not going to get upset by that, Matt. But it seems to me that these are two unique points of view in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And and both, by the way, weirdly, again, this is a bit counterintuitive at first, but strangely connected to um, a belief in 
something perfect. So to take the example of the pessimist, if you're depressed that your life hasn't worked out and you've got a pessimistic view, it's because in some counterfactual way, in some possible world, you're imagining that you could have been happy. So weirdly, um, you're in the world saying like things aren't working out. Life is terrible. It's awful. What I will find is maybe some relationship that you wish had worked out or some job you wish you'd taken, something where you a fantasy that in some other world it would be great. And that's what feeds pessimism. Whenever you realize that all of life has a certain struggle and trauma within it, so there's no kind of like perfect life you could have had, weirdly you overcome pessimism. So, so in other words, if you're depressed, the, the way to get over depression is to be more depressed, right? The problem is we're not depressed enough. We're not pessimistic enough. This is the Nietzschean idea of nihilism is only overcome when you fully enter into nihilism. Right. Um, Paul Tillich in a beautiful book called The Courage to Be says that meaninglessness, the experience that life has no meaning, is not something to fight. It's not something to set up a wall against. He says what you have to do is you go into that darkness. You go into the dark night of the soul, into that cloud of unknowing, into the heart of that darkness. And he says, and when you do that, you will find the way out. It's like an escape room where the only way out is to go deeper in. Yeah. And so we use these signifiers like meaning and meaninglessness. But in doing that, quite often you find great meaning on the other side of it, not because it's intrinsic to whatever you're doing, but because you realize you're assigning meaning to the things that happen to be your values, what's important to you, perhaps. Yes. We have a question here from Joshua Boggs on Facebook. What would lead one to become a nihilist? Why even strive to be successful in your own life if it is meaningless anyway? Yeah. yeah. So, so, Peter, the, the, the question here presupposes that one should strive to be, quote, successful. And I can tell you by, from following that recipe and talking to tens of thousands of people who have followed that recipe, yeah. they've all baked the same cake. Yes, yes. And it's misery. Yes. The striving is often the thing that makes us miserable. The idea of success, at least traditional cultural success, which is usually metric or goal-based, is something else that often makes us miserable. So what would lead one to become a nihilist is often, yes. it's in the question here, success yes. and the drive for success, right? They, absolutely. So there's a weird movement where when you're successful, like really successful, say in your field, you become a famous actor, you get that money. What you discover is there is a failure within that success. I, you get to the mountaintop and you're like, is that it? And that's not even, that's not even anecdotally, we can talk about that, but it, like yourself, and we're like, this constantly happens. You watch people who, if they think that, that getting their goal is going to work, it, it is existentially devastating. But however, the next step, is the success and failure. So the failure and success is when you, 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 you go for what you want and you realize it doesn't work. But then if you go into that failure, the idea is that that opens up to a different a mode of success. So in some respects, I think we all have to go through this. This is why Nietzsche said we all have to go through the death of God. Right. Because he says we, we kind of all have to experience, whether it's a broken relationship, the death of someone we love, um, uh, a, a failure in work or ill health, whatever it is, an event that kind of makes everything turn to, to vapor and dust is kind of like a moment 
where we can really enter into a new mode of being, something even better. Mm -hmm. But we have to kind of go into it. And so sometimes it's actually the people who strive the most are the ones who then fall into nihilism and then go through nihilism and then find this new way of being on the other side of that. Yeah. And there seems to be so many examples of this in all the ancient wisdom traditions, whether it's Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism. Can we talk about some of the the connections there? Yeah. And this is called dialectics in philosophy. And you discover it, which is if, if I give you two options, uh, generally we try to choose the best option. So if, if uh, you know, um, you've got a light and dark, you choose light. A uh-huh. narrow path, a wide path, you choose the wide path, whatever. Um, now, when you say you, we try to choose the, the better option, yes. it's perspectival, but it's not always the best option according to us. It could be what our culture has dictated for yes, us, the, yes. the, our programming. Absolutely, our programming. But even at a very base level, if, if I give you the option of happiness or sadness, you're, you know, we're naturally going to go for happiness, right? That's a very natural thing. Oh, I've got happiness and sadness in front of me. But in dialectics, the idea is actually um, you've got to choose the worst. So if you go to a proper psychoanalyst and you say to them, oh, you know, I'm I'm feeling depressed. You know, I want to get rid of that depression. I want to get rid of the darkness. The analyst actually brings you right into the heart of it. They go like, actually, in order to overcome the darkness, you have to go into the light. In order to find life, you have to die. In order to find a wide path, you have to go walk the narrow path. Mm-hmm. So dialectics is this really counterintuitive thing that, because I see this in Instagram and stuff where people talk about, you know, I, I want to surround myself with positivity. Right. But usually that's a sign of depression for me, disavowed depression, right? That they're they're having to affirm, which is a nice thing to do, affirm and things are good. And I look in the mirror every day and I say, You're gonna do it, Pete. You're beautiful, you can accomplish everything. And you know, that can make me feel better briefly. But the really sad and difficult thing is the dialectic of actually I have to face the darkness. I have to face the part of me that I'm trying always to avoid with these affirmations. And then, then you go into the darkness, the nihilism. And this is what, what I call the nihilistic heart of conversion. Conversion mm. is this moment of radical death that then allows for a resurrection, a new mode of being. That, that is, yeah, anyway, yeah, we get into that. That's, by the way, the death of God. I keep coming back to this phrase because Nietzsche used it. And I think it's the most beautiful way to understand nihilism. But maybe we can do that in the Maximalist. I don't know. Yeah, we'll do, get, it on the, we'll do it over on the Maximal yeah. episode. <laughs> Let's move on to our callers real quick. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Renee in Minneapolis has a question for us. I lost my husband to cancer when I was 40. I recently remarried and I'm in an abusive relationship and going through a divorce. And I feel incredibly broken. And I was wondering if you could speak to that brokenness and how to move through that as I begin to rebuild my life with my children and move back home. Renee, thanks for the easy softball question here. Holy moly. I'm kidding, obviously, but I'm really sorry to hear what you're going through, but I'm also grateful to hear you're going through it to the other side. I've actually played this message for my wife who, you know, previous to me, she was in an abusive marriage. And um, so it really resonated with her because there's a whole lot of despair, hopelessness. There's a lot of uh, confusion when you're going through all of this. There's there's too much chaos. And we start grasping for order when these things happen. Can you talk about that with Renee? Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear 
about what you've gone through. Um, the one of the things about um, psychoanalysis that I find interesting is there's there's a very popular view that we we are all kind of utilitarian. We all want to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain and. And human beings, we want the best for ourselves. You know, even if we do weird things, we ultimately um, are trying to pursue our own self-interest. But I would say the truth is actually much more complicated that sometimes we we want our own downfall. Sometimes we enter into self-destructive behavior. Sometimes we hate ourselves and we we turn that hatred against ourselves. Or sometimes we find ourselves in difficult environments and we stay in them because it reflects something um, that we see in ourselves. So I maybe stay too long in an abusive relationship because in one sense, um, I get to see through the other person's eyes the way I see myself or whatever. Mm. So, so always my advice is, so as to break these types of repetitions, is to really find someone, a good psychotherapist or psychoanalyst, um, and to to do this. It's the hard work. It's a very courageous work to do, to, to have the courage to sit once a week or twice a week and go into those dark parts of yourself and, and mourn. Because sometimes what happens is when something very traumatic happens, like the death of your husband, um, you can't mourn. You can't even mourn. It's too, it's too much. It's a trauma. It's an event that is so big, you can't put it into words. You can't symbolize it. I right. think in the last uh, last uh, minimalist we talked about I talked about Bion who said that for a child they have these experiences of beta elements which is an event that happens that the child can't articulate they can't put into words they can't speak and so it remains within them it yes. remains and, and they cry and they act out but they can't they can't symbolize it mm-hmm. and Bion talks about the role of the parent as an alpha function and the alpha function is when the, the parent is able to take the child and soothe the child and put their trauma, their beta element into language to, to help them start to speak it and to think it. And he calls this, I love this because he calls it the alpha function, because what you can hear in this is the role of the parent is to alphabetize the experience, to put into language the trauma. Mm. Now, if we can't alphabetize the trauma, say, of the death of, of the, this loved one, it remains within us unspoken like a rock like the black hole that's devastating and will cause it it comes out it finds a way to speak the trauma that we cannot speak always finds a way to speak and it finds a way to speak through uh maybe going into a difficult relationship or being having difficult relationship with your your kids or through a bad back or heart disease it'll always find a way to speak a symptom as we think we've talked about a symptom comes in the word santom and Saint-Tom sounds like uh, Huliman, Saint-Tom in French, Huliman, which means a prophet. So your symptom is a prophet that speaks the truth. And your symptoms tell you a truth that you cannot speak. So all of this to say that going to a, a good psychotherapist is a way sometimes to, to be able to speak the loss, to mourn it, to put it into language. And by doing that, you will become healthier and we'll be able to have healthier relationships in the future. So mm-hmm. that's, I always kind of, that's my advice. Is, I mean, you maybe already have a good psychotherapist, but um, I'd recommend that. And you're welcome to email me if you want me to help you find one. You know, so. We'll put a link to Peter's website in the show notes. Um, Renee, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I'd love to see you. We're going to be out in Minneapolis in February. So 
podcast, Sean, I think you reach out to her if she wants to bring her kids or whatever to the event. We're doing a live podcast, uh, minimalism talk, but lo- love to give you a hug as well. Um, theminimalists.com slash tour. You can find all 20 cities over there. Or if you can't make it and you're listening to this, you can find all 20 events as we post them over on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, we're going to check in with our live stream, but for the sake of time, I'm going to do that during the Maximal episode. We'll answer some of your comments and questions on the Patreon live stream. Shout out to our patrons. But it is time for our lightning round. This is where we answer your questions with short, shareable, less than 140 character responses you remember this i remember this well yeah uh we really just maunder on a bit and then podcast sean tweezes out something beautiful he makes it pithy and yeah you can share it on social media if you like you can find all of our minimal maxims in the show notes or all of them in one place minimalmaxims.com it looks like we have a question from elodie oh here by the way i've got a tweetable thing about this there's okay there's always a short answer to every problem and it's always wrong <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah. Amen to that. And before we get into Elodie's question, it's um, it's it's always wrong because we're looking for it to be right. Yes, and and short, like a lot of these things are very complex and thoughtful, but still, you know, aphorisms have a place. So let's do some aphorism. Yes, yeah, so, and I think aphorisms are only helpful if they allow us to unpack them. Yes, yes. If it becomes yes. no, this is the perfect truth in this one sentence. It's unquestionable then yeah, run, run away, head for the hills, yes. right? Let's, uh, let's hear Elodie's question. How do you find new meaning when the meaning you wanted to give your life is no longer possible? Me first. Why not? Okay, all right. It doesn't have to be pithy okay. right away. Okay. Let's, let's talk about meaning. Mm-hmm. So the search for meaning, mm-hmm. how do you find new meaning when the meaning you wanted to give your life is no longer possible. So you wanted to find meaning in something. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a car. Maybe it was a home. Maybe it was the city you lived in. Maybe it was your your peer group or your career Mm. or your busyness, you know, the calendar clutter, right? And you wanted to find meaning there and then you didn't. Yeah. How do you find new meaning is what she's asking. Yeah. And okay. And so if I was to define depression in a very succinct way. Um, Depression is often the loss of desire, the loss of meaning. So the more depressed someone is, the more they can't desire anything. They just, food is fuel, getting out of bed is just a chore. Like there's no walking is just to get from A to B, that Mm -hmm. your desire is no longer functioning. And a lot of overcoming depression is finding one's meaning, finding a way to find life and meaning in life. And um, if you believe life is meaningful, but you don't love, you can't help but experience it as meaningless. And if you're in love with something, a cause or whatever, even if you don't believe life is meaningful, you can't help but experience it as meaningful, right? Uh, So there's one of the things that's important for me is if I meet someone or myself and all meaning is basically gone. And by the way, the way that happens often is there's some object in your life that is what's called the object cause of your desire. So say you love somebody. They're not just an object that you desire, they're what enables your desire. So that right. when you lose them, you don't just lose one of the 10 things you desire in the world. You lose the ability to desire the other nine things as well, right? So it's like your your desire stops functioning. It just d- dissipates. And, and when that happens, you've lost the object cause of your desire. Um, the, the key is, and I would say this, thinking of Paul Tillich and maybe Viktor Frankl, is there's always, to be human is to always have some 
overvaluation, some sense of meaning, something. Even the most depressed of us, something gets us out of bed at night, in the morning. Uh, so Viktor Frankl, he um, he would ask his his clients, why have you not killed yourself? So it's a very rough question to ask and things so like, well, why are you here and why have you not killed yourself? And that question begins to open up that there's something that got that person to the room. There's yeah. something that got that person to ask that question. There's something. And now we're going to fan that. We're going we're gonna to try and draw that out and bring that meaning up again. Um, so sometimes it's almost like, well, how, not how do I find meaning? Meaning already is there somewhere and I just have to start locating it within my body. Mm. And there might not be any meaning of life, but there is meaning in life. Yeah. Man. Oof. You could tweet that podcast, Sean. I have a pithy answer for you. Maybe we can unpack it a little bit here. A meaningful life resides at the intersection of love and devotion. And so that love that you're talking about, you know, we, I think we often misunderstand love. You know, Ryan and I wrote a whole book about it recently. Was the, the whole idea is like, oh, yeah, I love my wife, but I also love tacos. And it's like, well, wait a minute. We don't mean the, the same thing there. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them explicitly. Now, they might change. In fact, love tends to change everyone. But the moment we try to change someone, oh, I w it becomes conditional love. Pete, I would love you if you change these seven things about yourself. Yeah. Uh, Devotion is the other side of this. What you're really talking about is fanning that flame there, finding something to devote yourself to. It's the reason that creativity is often such a pool for someone, an artist or a writer or a filmmaker. They, they feel this obsessive devotion to this thing that becomes meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that it's inherently meaningful. And so at that intersection of love and devotion, that's where, that's where we tend to find meaning. Mm -hmm. Even if it isn't there, we tend to bring the meaning there ourselves. And I would say, yeah, and then connecting this with the idea of nihilism and nothing is, so a thinker I like Lacan would talk about how love always orients itself to to a lack or a gap in the other. So for example, um, whenever, if I fall in love with someone but because they complete me because I think they're amazing and they're brilliant or whatever, that's kind of like a romantic love and it's, it's, it's fun, right? Yeah. But, uh, Lacan once said, love is giving what you do not have to someone who does not want it. And, and what he kind of means by that is when you're really in love, there's something I don't have, like a, as in I feel incomplete. And my desire is my lack, you know, and I give that to somebody and they don't really want it because they want someone who's strong and perfect and wonderful and great. But somehow they take that lack and they enjoy it. And the reason why I say this is like whenever an artist loves beauty, they don't just love the beautiful and they just don't they don't just paint something and think that they can grasp the beautiful. The beautiful is always something that is lacking in every painting. It's mm. what it's what inspires you always. So you can never you can never create the most the beautiful painting. Beauty is something that is always present and absent at the same time. It's a ghost. A ghost is a present absence. And so beauty is like, it's there. You feel it. You're immersed in it in your painting, but you can never grasp it. When you think you can grasp it, that's not love. That's fanaticism. If you think you can grasp the truth, um, whereas, but the point is you're not also, you can't grasp the truth, but also you can't get away from the truth. Because as soon as you talk about whether there's truth or not, we're assuming truth, right? We're, uh -huh. we're assuming meaning. and we're, So you can't get away from truth, but you also can't grasp it. And that's for me what love is, is when you love someone or a cause, it's like 
you're with something that you're not with. You grasp something that you can't grasp. It's like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. The person is this fragile frame, this tiny, that's graspable, but their inner world is ungraspable. So love both has and has not. And Mm. and that the reason why I say that is so that you because if if you have an orientation to this openness of what you do not have, and if that's where you get your enjoyment, then you're never dissatisfied because because you're satisfied in your dissatisfaction. You kind of enjoy. <laughs> so like that's the whole point of problems with consumerism is always promise you'll be happy when you get the object. You know, this is going like, no, there's a certain not having that's enjoyable. Right. In fact, preferable in many oh, instances, yeah. right? It's fascinating some of the words we use here. And I've talked about this previously, but I'd love to run this by you real quick before we move on. In fact, I'll skip the right here, right now segment so we can talk about this. But we use these words like void and we try to fill the void. That presupposes the void is a bad thing. Yeah. The lack is a bad thing. Yeah. But then when you go to Montana, you don't say, oh my God, look at this void. We need to fill this this valley with yeah. stuff yes. or with people or whatever. And, and no, you enjoy the void. And uh, that the fact that it is missing something is what makes it beautiful. Yes, 100%. And this is like... A, not just a kind of a poetic thing. I mean, even in the sciences, so you have in biology, the non-at-oneness of the biological organism is called evolution, evolutionary theory, which means that there's some sort of antagonism within biological organisms. In physics, it's called indeterminacy, the idea that reality itself has a certain kind of antagonism uh, or superpositioning. Uh, In politics, it's called democracy. The non-at-oneness of the social body with itself is called democracy. Um, in psychoanalysis, it's called the unconscious, which is the not at oneness of the of consciousness with itself. And the reason why I'm bringing out all of these different frames is it's we don't realize how um, something about lack or antagonism or contradiction is at the heart of love. It's a heart of subjectivity, but it's also at the heart of reality itself. And that's what makes everything. That's what gives everything what it is. So there's a way of thinking about nihilism in that sense. Um, but the beautiful, I said, the beautiful thing about the, the writers of nihilism, and we're thinking of Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, people like that, is that they're not nihilists as such. What they believe is that nihilism already is an event. It's already here, right? We already live, but we're denying it. And when we enter into it and when we actually embrace the darkness, when we have the courage to go into it fully, then we discover this new meaning, this new kind of way of life, way of being arises that that has a type of nothingness as part of it, right? It's mm. part of its very structure. Yes. And, uh, it is required. The nothingness is what quote, completes us, yes. yeah. is maybe it, the the being accepting of the void, not in a prescriptive way, like do these three things and you'll accept the void, but simply understanding that that is part of it all, right? Yeah. The thing that makes a, a space beautiful or a life beautiful is often the lack. Yes. And this is, I mean, this is why I'm in Los Angeles, because Los Angeles is the most religious place in the world, right? It's the most religious Mecca. Um, because, now, when people hear you say that. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, they yeah. are, they're going to be bowled over because what does that mean? I'm thinking of some place in Mississippi must be the most <laughs> religious place in the world. You mean something different? Yeah, well, just that it's a place of wholeness and completeness, certainty and satisfaction. Everybody mm. here is looking. There's prophets in every corner saying that you can be whole and complete if you have enough money, you look the right way, you have a certain amount of fame. The tyranny of happiness is everywhere in Los Angeles. It's quite incredible. It's palpable. The um, you you know the it's very difficult to be unhappy. Happy to you know you can be you know to find a space to have the enjoyment of unhappiness here. So if you th- if you think of religion as the philosophy, the theory, and the practice of wholeness, completeness, oneness, then you know Los Angeles is this secular religious mecca. And what's interesting about nihilism or existentialism in particular is. This term, the death of God, is fascinating. So it actually starts with St. Paul. The Apostle Paul is the first one to use it, right? He talks about the death of God. And it's a very bizarre phrase. Uh, And so this is an occultic setting, and I mean cultic in its traditional sense of a provisional religious practice, right? Mm -hmm. Paul uses this word, death of God. And Paul doesn't even understand kind of what he's saying. He just says it and he says, this is central to salvation. Something about, not the death of a God or a messenger of God, the death of God is something fundamentally existentially world historical. Now, nobody really does anything with it until, say, Luther. Then Luther raises it to a theological concept. So Luther takes this notion of the death of God and, say, makes it theological. Then Hegel later, uh, he he raises it to the dignity of philosophy. So with Hegel, this death of God becomes a philosophical concept. And then with Nietzsche, he returns to Paul. So he's very Pauline. He again says, the death of God is an existential event that we all have to go through. And then Freud it develops a technology to help people confront this. So I would that's the kind of genealogy. But what connects all of these things together is the idea that disruption, distortion, decentering is central event that we have to experience, an experience of the death of meaning, the loss of all of our coordinates for why we're here, who we are, what we're doing. This event is something that is not just something we go through, but it's actually something we ought to embrace. It's something central that even every teenager kind of goes through a mini death of God, you know. Um, But there's something about this event that is so central existentially to the cure the cure being to a new mode of life, a new mode of being freed from our libidinal investment and objects that will satisfy us, uh, free from these libidinally frenetic attempts to be happy, whole and complete. And once we undergo existentially that event and have the courage to do it, we then enter into the freedom to, and as Shizek would say, not the freedom to be happy, but the freedom from happiness. It's great to be free to be happy. Brilliant. Let's have the freedom to pursue what will make us happy. But we also need the space where we're free from the pursuit of what will make us happy. And that's what happens through the death of God. Mm. Pete, we got so much more to talk about. (laughs) Malabama, you got something for us first? Here are some voicemail comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, this is Nancy from Iowa. My 91-year-old mother, who lives in a senior apartment complex, stayed at my home for Christmas. We watched some DVDs that my minimalist millennial children watched years ago. These Disney movies, musicals, and teen comedies were things that she had never seen before. She laughed a lot, and it got me thinking that most seniors in her complex had not seen these lighthearted comedies and musicals either. 
We boxed up all of the movies my children loved, but now stream instead, and donated them to the senior complex for their weekly movie nights. These movies are now also seen in the neighboring nursing home. Hi, my name is Chime Pasovec. I just wanted to recommend a book called Simplicity Parenting by Kim John Payne and Lisa M. Ross. And it talks about similar things about how to parent simplistically. Um, and I also wanted to recommend Waldorf Education, W-A-L-D-O-R-F, founded by Rudolf Steiner. This kind of education, um, I'm a Waldorf teacher, and it really um, just aligns with a lot of the principles that you talk about. And I think it's a really great source, a really good choice for education if people want to live aligning with minimalist ideas. All right, y'all. Let's get to our added value segment real quick. So before we started recording, I was talking to you about Terrence Malick. And it seems to me there's almost like this nihilist bent to his films, but in such a beautiful way. It's not the dark nihilism that we think about devolving into darkness and quote unquote meaninglessness, although there's great meaning and meaninglessness interwoven into his films. I just rewatched Tree of Life with my wife recently, and it sort of walks people through this, um, well, the inception, the, the sort of macro level of the inception of the universe all the way down to like the birth of a of a child on this micro level. And it seems to me that there's simultaneously great meaning and lack of meaning. Yes. What do you see when you see a Terrence Malick film? Yeah. I and mean, we were chatting about this, as you said earlier, and I was saying that Malick actually was a philosopher before a director, or at least he studied philosophy, um, I think under a guy called Herbert Dreyfus. And Herbert Dreyfus was one of the few analytic philosophers who um, really got into Heidegger's work. So, uh, so Malick is a Heideggerian as such. And Heidegger's whole thing, Heidegger was a, uh, kind of connected with existentialism. And and Heidegger's whole thing really was that we um, have got so caught up in what he calls the they, which is, uh, Kierkegaard calls it leveling, but we just care about, uh, we think whatever the media tells us to think, we our friends tell us to think, we don't think for ourselves, we just give ourselves over to whatever's there. We, It's, it's the great leveling. The, he, Heidegger calls it the they because it's what they think. Whenever mm. somebody goes, oh, they wouldn't like that. They, so they and, and they is nobody and everybody. It's yeah. weird. You can never point at who the they is, but the they seems to be all everywhere and nowhere. And it's creating a villain or otherizing in a way that I don't know, abdicates us from from the responsibility. That's yes. a terrible word, but uh, from whatever's going on outside of us, right? Yes. I mean, it's a great way to advocate responsibility. I mean, one of the reasons why Kierkegaard hated the, what he called basically the crowd or the mass is because you know, he says one individual won't kick somebody to death, but you have a crowd of a hundred people and you'll kick someone to death with everybody else. In other words, weirdly, your responsibility as an individual is dissipated mm-hmm. through the they. And by the way, he, he said, um, 
whenever he talked about leveling, uh, Kierkegaard said, it's, it's, imagine you're in a church and someone is uh, preaching about slander or something like that. And you're listening and you're going, oh, I hope the person beside me is listening to this because this is them, right? He says, no one ever hears the sermon. They only overhear it, right? I overhear the conversation with somebody else. And it's, he said, basically, that's like leveling. Whenever we talk about leveling, it's always, yes, I know people who don't think for themselves. <laughs> it's never me. It's never me. <laughs> we, we never hear that message. We always overhear it. But Kierkegaard says, no, we, we are all tempted to 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 level, to to think the way we're told um, and not think for ourselves. So Heidegger's variance that. And then Heidegger in his book, Being in Time, which is very Malik, he, uh, he says, we've forgotten the question of being. He says, there's lots of beings, like things, right? We're, our world is full of things. Mm-hmm. But he says, but there is a, almost like a, um, and this is, this is where Malik's a little bit mystical in his, in his filmmaking, but um, there's almost like this sensitivity, not to the, just individual things that are in the universe, but to the universe itself, to mm-hmm. the beauty that is infused within everything. And uh, so I really see that in Malik, especially with the Tree of Life. There's this meditative, almost Heideggerian kind of drawing you into a kind of detachment from things and an experience of thingness itself, <laughs> the beauty of th- the reality itself. Yes. Yeah. My wife and I, when we were watching it, she was, she just commented on how it was the most beautiful film she'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because it was almost as though he was filming being yes. itself. Yes. That's there it. was no, it wasn't about doing, it wasn't about the actions and how the plot unfolds. There's no plot. There's no script. There's none of that. That becomes obsolete in a, a film like this. It's funny what you were talking about earlier. You, you reminded me of you know, looking at our neighbor. I really hope my neighbor's listening to this yeah. thing that happens at our live events all the time where someone comes to the mic. Can you tell my husband that he needs to get rid of his things in the garage? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell my wife she has too many shoes or whatever, right? Yes. And you know, this manifests in different religions as well. There are whole parables about this. Yes. By the way, Pete's going to be on tour with us. I'm not going to tell you what tour stop. You're going to have to find out for your own. Uh, we're coming to 20 different cities. We've already done nine of them. Theminimalists.com slash tour. It's the Love People Use Things tour. If you want to see Pete at one of those stops, you can. Uh, there's some context clues there. You can figure out yeah. where he will be. Don't think you need to be Columbo to work it out, but hey, we would say. <laughs> um, by the way, Another one more thing about uh, Malik, if you're up for it, let's do it. Okay, is um, so a thinker I like is a guy Gabriel Marcel, and yes. he, he talks about the difference between problem and mystery. A problem is something that you separate yourself from and you look at and you can be objective about. A mystery is, is a type of problem in which you're simultaneously invested, right? So you oh. can't take any distance from it because you're within the very thing you're thinking. And um, Malik, I think, does this very beautifully that the characters are infused within the wider universe. They're infused. It's the, the, the world is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to participate in. And I think yeah. that's a very Malik kind of vibe. Well, we'll make that our added value this week. Podcast, Sean, if you could put a link to Tree of Life in the show notes. And if you want to check out Pete, he has a great podcast called The Fundamentalists. I would encourage you to check that out. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And his website, you can find all of his social media, his videos, his courses, It's just peterrollins.com. That's the one. 
by the way, Pete, we got a bunch more surprise questions this week. Like, what causes suffering and how do we avoid it? How do we accurately identify and address the sources of our depression when it's not an obvious concern like a lack of money or friends? How do you appropriately bring up the topic of depression with someone you're close to and are worried about? Plus a million more questions for Peter and the Minimalists. Well, Pete and me, really. And if you want to hear all that, check out the Minimalist private podcast. Visit patreon.com slash the Minimalist to subscribe and get your personal link so that our weekly private podcast plays in your favorite podcast app. You also gain immediate access to hundreds of hours of private archives, recordings of live events, exclusive home tours, and our private community of thousands of open-minded minimizers like you. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. If you want our podcast show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list at theminimalists.com. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, Podcast Sean, Alabama, Jordan No More, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, and Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn, reminding you to love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it